This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 15th of July 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Charlotte Henry and we'll examine why there's been an increase in the banning of books around the world. First, though, here's the news. President Vladimir Zelensky warned Ukrainians that Russia is throwing all its resources into a campaign to stop Kyiv's troops from pressing their counteroffensive, and a top general reported new progress on the southern front. Russian accounts say its forces had repelled Ukrainian attacks in the eastern Donetsk region, that's including around Bakhmut. In climate news, seven people have died and thousands have been evacuated in South Korea today as a third day of torrential rains caused landslides and the overflow of a dam. Red alerts have been issued for 15 cities across Italy as extreme heat continues to affect southern Europe. A blistering US heat wave is forecast to intensify this weekend with warnings issued across the southwest. And in Canada, about 900 wildfires are currently burning across the country, some 560 of which remain out of control. And the US Senate is expected to consider a bipartisan measure that would compel the US government to publicly release records relating to possible UFO sightings after decades of stonewalling. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, says for decades many Americans have been fascinated by objects mysterious and unexplained, and it's long past time they get some answers. And that's your Monocle Radio News. And welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I am Georgina Godwin and I'm joined now in the studio by Charlotte Henry. She's a journalist and author. She runs the edition newspaper and the podcast and, and podcast. And she's written the book Not Buying It. Charlotte, very, very important first question. Do you believe in UFOs? Well, I'm gonna have to see what they uh, what data we get from the from Chuck Schumann Co. It's quite exciting, isn't it? We might the truth might finally be out there. It might be out there. That's that's very exciting. But uh, of course, truth and what is and isn't true is one of your specialities. your book not buying it what's that about so it was written i published about four years ago in 2019 it's about fake news disinformation all those things we thought in 2019 we might have reached the pit reached the pinnacle of it we'd you know that was all the talk then wasn't it about fake news luckily nothing's happened in the few years since uh, that i would have to think about the topic again so we're all all right I mean, the thing is that it was, it became really a thing, sure. what, back in 2016? Yeah, it seemed to be, obviously, the dreaded Brexit word. Uh, during that debate, there was a lot of talk about that. And obviously, the dreaded Trump word, he came along and exacerbated. So for the number, those kind of 2016-2020 block, it certainly built up over that period of time. And in many ways, it seemed to go on with it. And obviously, the more we talk about things like AI... Um, kind of the risks of disinformation become more relevant because people throw out AI as a bit of a generic term, but actually there's things where you could start seeing, particularly with audio and visual, you know, people manipulating 
real people's voices and real people's imagery to make someone famous say something they haven't actually said, which obviously has all sorts of fa- uh, important implications. I heard Martin Lewis, the, the money-saving expert, talking about how online he sees scams of himself, uh, you know, advocating for schemes and stuff and having to explain to people, no, this isn't me. I'm not the one telling you to do this scheme. Obviously, a trusted individual like that, that can have quite serious implications. Absolutely. I mean, in your book, do you chart the rise of how this happened? And where do we see the genesis of it? Because I guess it's been with us forever. Yeah, there was some of that in the book. The Bible. (laughs) There was some of that in the book of like, oh my goodness, we're all freaking out about this. But, you know, there's always been issues. The truth is, obviously, the way we consume information now totally exacerbated how it came. There were obviously cultural changes, that famous had enough of experts thing. Also, there were there were big cultural changes as well that did shift the dynamics mm. somewhat. But I mean, as you say, it's having real world implications now. And one of those that we're seeing very much in the news, and this is a story that's covered uh, universally today, is uh, the strike in Hollywood. Mm. First, it was the writers. They've been on the picket line since May. And now the actors have joined in too. And this is very much to do with AI. Uh, it's one of their concerns. This is the first time since 1960 that both writers and stri- and uh, actors have been on strike together. We saw uh, Matt Damon and Emily Blunt and co walk out of the Oppenheimer uh, premiere the other night here in London as soon as the strike was called as kind of an act of solidarity. So one of the things the actors and writers are concerned about is that basically the studios will go, it's actually easier to get an algorithm to write a comedy, a drama than have people in a writer's room do it. And I guess also there are there are concerns from the writer's side that they'll have, you know, the kind of audio-visual interpretations of them that I was describing. So you don't always need to get the superstar to come in and do it and get paid, paid them to do that. Mm. So that there are those concerns. But there are the concerns. So the writers were concerned about things like having less of them in a writer's room, so there were less opportunities to work. One of the big things for both the writers and actors is how residuals are paid, you know, their kind of royalties and what the consequences of streaming have have been on that. And, you know, there's less transparency. Uh, It's hard, you know, everything's a bit more, you know, widely distributed. It's quite hard to know where things are and who's watching what. So there's a lot of concern about that as well. And I think there's particularly from the writers, there's concern about um, series, seasons, as they call them in the U.S., becoming shorter but they were kind of trapped into contracts so they were having less work but couldn't go and get other work in the same period of time so everything has just become really squeezed for them and you know it's quite easy for Matt Damon and Emily Blunt to be on strike they're not going to have to worry about their bills for the end of the year but if you can imagine that maybe lower actors new actors people trying to make it in Hollywood as this you know the the writers have been on strike for over 70 days now for for actors to do that as well there's going to be some financial hits for people. Well, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's adjacent industries. It's every from, from, from the makeup people to the caterers. I mean, it, it really... Sure. I mean, if you've got no actors and no writers and production start being shut down... It has, you're absolutely right, it has huge impacts on all sorts of people. Uh, and, and one of the, the kind of group of people that are affected are extras. So these are people who will turn up to be background action sure. or whatever. And uh, what they're saying is that they will just turn up for the first day, their images will be stored, and then they will that, that will be used. So they get a day's work, but they might be in a series for, for, for weeks. And they might have, in previous times, got days and days and days of work. Yeah. 
Um, it's it's extraordinary. Now, also authors, not just Hollywood authors, are getting in on this. So uh, Mona Awad and Paul Tremblay are alleging that their books, which are copyrighted, as m- most books mm-hmm. are, are, have been used to train chat GBT. So all of this is is, is input, I guess. And, mm. and, and then there's, what is it called, data scraping mm. to, 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 to train these bots. Yeah, well, these things like J- chat GPT are called large language models. So they basically want as much information as they can get into them. The more, uh, the more they get input, the better the output is, ultimately. And I think this is the thing when we talk about AI to remember. AI today is as bad as it will ever be. It will only get, it'll be better tomorrow. It'll be better in a week's time. It will, you know, it's, that's what people are concerned about. Not only where it is now, but where it could be in the future. Mm. And so, of course, what we need is regulation. That's what lots of people would argue. I think it's... What's interesting is that politicians, regulators of all kinds, have switched onto this much earlier than they did with things like when social media started becoming prevalent and it was just kind of left. There's obviously much greater concern and scrutiny at a much earlier stage Mm. for these kind of large language models. Uh, Now, of course, as you say, often we see images that just aren't true. And here in the UK, we've had an example of this, which also illustrates what news priorities are for a domestic Mm -hmm. audience. Uh, There was a a BBC, a very prominent newsreader, who's been accused of various things, none of them illegal. Uh, But what was happening was that all of these pictures of him semi-naked were coming out on the internet, which I think have been proved were actually n- not real. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be too hard to put an image and make an image from something like a programme called Mid Journey or something like that to do something like that. I've got, I mean, if we want to talk about fake news as well, one of the issues, as before we knew the name was Hugh Ed, was that all sorts of other BBC presenters had accusations thrown at them with all sorts of very serious implications. Mm, mm. Uh, and I mean, what really struck me about this was that he was a, a news or is a newsreader, hasn't resigned yet, uh, for a, a, a main anchor for the BBC. The BBC spent a week just reporting on themselves. And this was a week during which uh, NATO was happening, uh, during which we saw an exacerbation of the climate crisis, but also domestically, where Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister, was meant to put in his phone to be scrutinised, uh, all his WhatsApp messages to be scrutinised in the COVID inquiry. He he failed to do that. This did not make one newspaper on the day it happened. And Boris Johnson forgetting his PIN number. Um, it was extraordinary. It's... Look, for me, as a, someone who covers media, I'm always loath to say, oh, we shouldn't talk about the media because I do think there's lots of important implications for reporting on the media. But the BBC seems to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about itself. I think in part there is a fear when something like this happens that it doesn't want to be seen for covering one of its own. So it almost goes too far the other way. Um, but, but, I mean, the stories you listed, you're right, are orders of magnitude more important than the sort of sleazy things, reports about a news anchor. Mm. Now, Hugh Edwards is a prominent figure. He sort of, you could argue, is the face of BBC News. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been reported at all, but I I, I would think a NATO summit when there's a war in Europe 
is probably a more important story. It's quite, quite extraordinary. And, and again, I say that as someone who spends their whole time writing about and reporting on the media industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, very, very, very odd. Um, this sort of takes us really back to, to the US and, and what's going on there at mm. the moment. Uh, we, we're talking about all of these big stories. And of course, one of the big stories in, in the US today is a new bill. And I'm not talking about the UFO bill. <laughs> oh, I wanted to do half an hour on UFOs. Are we not doing that? Uh, that's what I was promised. <laughs> Tell oh. us about, about what else is, is, is going through there. Well, as you know, everything in the US has to be about a culture war. And that's even if you're talking about legislation designed to deal with war. So there was a new defence bill. It was meant to be a bipartisan bill. I think one of the things kind of American politicians tend to try and agree on is things around defence. Uh, and some of the I was reading about this, but it seems to basically be the premise was some stuff to do with Russia and China and give a pay rise to service members. That was the basic premise, I think. And then some of the far right Republicans threw all sorts of other cultural issues in there. So things around transgender healthcare, things around abortion, things, things like that, some kind of stuff about the type of books and things people, that the Pentagon could pay for. Uh, and it kind of all got ramroded in that, you know, the Republican leadership can't do it, has to acquiesce to this far right fringe. And, and it's, it's got through. And then you suddenly have something that's meant to be a bipartisan, a, you know, the country coming together in the name of defence became this kind of mess. And I was apparently the Republicans that didn't vote for this because they didn't think it was sort of far right and conservative enough. There wasn't enough stuff added on. Which is quite, quite extraordinary. It, it, it does seem extraordinary to me that there can be nothing now where you don't have to put these touchstone social issues in it. You can have serious conversations about all those things, but you should also be able to dip, like deal with the other issues as well. And it seems that these kind of MAGA Republicans, for want of a better phrase, don't seem to be able to navigate anything without dealing with those touchstones. Mm. I mean, it does seem to me, and indeed there's been a lot of coverage over this on this over the last few weeks, that a lot of these culture wars, or so-called culture mm. wars, I want to put them in inverted commas, are confected. I, I guess ultimately they are, because people just want to whip that. And that's what I'm saying, kind of. There's no doubt people particularly in America, some of those issues are real hot topic issues, aren't they? There's no doubt about it. But I don't really see why if you're trying to deal with kind of service members pay, you need to also be talking about that. Mm, mm. And, and banning books. And in fact, since 2020, there have been unparalleled challenges mm. facing literature. In the US, books are being challenged in schools and public libraries at the highest levels since records began. And elsewhere around the world, regimes implementing their own agenda into curriculums, all whilst censoring important facts. The question, though, is why now? So Monica Lillis finds out more. The banning of books and censorship of writing is not a new phenomenon. The earliest records of book banning are thought to have occurred thousands of years ago. Since the days of ancient Rome to the Qin dynasty in China, there have been constant efforts to suppress the works of authors, and that continues today. 
Russia is among the top nations across the globe with the highest share of worldwide book bans, as well as recent censorship of textbooks in schools. As Dr Jade McGlynn, Research Fellow of War Studies at King's College London and author of Russia's War, told me. The Russian government would insist that they haven't banned any books. There is no banned book list. But what there is, is a list of extremist materials. And it's illegal to publish for mass distribution these extremist materials. But a lot of the material is also, with worrying echoes of the US actually, simply material that contains LGBTQ characters or that that promotes something that promotes certain values that, that the Russian government is not especially fond of. As a result of the war in Ukraine, Russia's government is reportedly encouraging its teachers to become frontline soldiers in the war on information. Severe wartime laws have been passed and schools are now conducting classes in patriotism, as well as learning that collective happiness of the motherland is more precious than their own. So this happened as well in 2014, where they hurriedly added chapters on Crimea and rewrote everything about Crimea after the annexation. And of course, again, this has been happening, and in particular last autumn, so autumn 2022, not only did they add in these sections on the special military operation, as, as legally they should call it, but they also started to remove any positive references to Ukraine and also any references to Kiev in discussions of Kiev and Ruth. The rewriting of textbooks has long been a sort of political football and a political issue with constant calls to have a unified state history textbook. However, so far, that hasn't happened. And there are lots of different reasons for that. But there was an interesting study recently that found that whilst Russians are broadly supportive of the government's memory laws or its laws to sort of control history, they don't feel that it as appropriate to do that in school because they think that that should be more a place of of learning. So that could be one option. The other option is that none of the textbooks, although they have slightly different approaches, none of them are really challenging the government's narrative in any way. It's not just war zones where this phenomenon is occurring. In the US, book bans are becoming ever more common. PEN America is a non-profit organisation that works to defend and celebrate freedom of expression in the United States and worldwide through the advancement of literature and human rights. In a recent report, they discovered that since 2020, attempts to ban books have increased tenfold. I spoke to Casey Meehan, Programme Director for Freedom to Read at PEN America, who told me about her research. PEN America has been tracking book bans since 2021 as part of a larger nationwide campaign that PEN calls the Ed Scare. And this is really a campaign to foment anxiety and anger with the goal of suppressing free speech in public education. So we see this happening through book bans coupled with a proliferation of legislative efforts that we call gag orders that restrict teaching about topics such as race, gender, you know, U.S. American history, LGBTQ plus identity, sex and sexuality. So this larger kind of movement to really restrict the freedom to read, learn and think for students in public schools. As the schools went virtual, you know, more parents were a little bit more directly exposed to what was happening in the school. You know, at the same time, we see kind of this growing campaign to suppress speech. Part of this is driven by a growing campaign in the U.S. that's being called like the parents' rights movement, right? This idea that parents should have a say in their students' educational experiences. I should know that this movement is being driven by, you know, a vocal minority. So this is, you know, overwhelmingly, we know that individuals in the United States do not endorse the banning of books. 
And there's kind of a very small, well-coordinated group of actors that are really driving this movement to censor books from school libraries. Moms for Liberty is standing up for parental rights across America, but now we're under attack. Moms for Liberty made news this week by being labeled as extremist and anti-government. Radical groups like the SPLC are trying to silence us. One parental rights group that seems to be making the most impact in the US is an initiative called Moms for Liberty. The group claim they are fighting for the survival of America by unifying, educating and empowering parents to defend their so-called parental rights. It has captured both national and international media attention for its efforts to push back against COVID restrictions in schools and more recently their move to ban certain titles in public libraries. However, they have been met with fierce backlash. Just a few weeks ago, civil rights watchdog Southern Poverty Law Centre stated the group was divisive and even went as far as calling them extremist. We see many of the book bans are directly connected to organized advocacy groups, one of which is certainly Moms for Liberty. Perhaps the most influential, we have tracked that Moms for Liberty is connected to almost 60% of all kind of like advocacy or group-led book bans across the country. You know, unfortunately for free expression organizations, they're quite effective in kind of coordinating and connecting with individuals in their communities and raising alarm around the books that are being offered to students in, in their public schools. Harvey J. Graff is Professor Emeritus of English and History and Academy Professor at The Ohio State University. He tells us what he thinks about these organizations. In the United States right now, there's all kind of nonsense about establishing parents' rights. When parents already have rights under law, they're erasing children's rights in general. And something that concerns me very much, both as a scholar and a citizen, children need to be challenged to develop to mature, literally to grow up. However, Harvey tells me, for the US at least, there is certainly a solution. We across the United States, from traditionally conservative groups to liberal to progressive groups, from the American Civil Liberties Union, which is by no means a left-wing group, American Library Association is not left-wing, Pan America, lots of other groups and individuals defenders of libraries like the people I'm helping in Llano County, Texas, are going to the courts and we are winning on constitutional grounds. Recently, the Moms for Liberty held their four-day national summit in the US city of Philadelphia. The event convened hundreds of conservative women and Republican Party hopefuls, including Donald Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. With such growing popularity and support, 2023 will continue to show whether the views of minority will enter the mainstream. For Monocle Radio, I'm Monica Lillis. Many thanks there to Monica Lillis. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and my guest in the studio is Charlotte Henry. Charlotte, she was mentioning Pen America there and indeed we had some quotes from the staff and of course uh, English Pen is the founding organisation of what is the world's oldest human rights organisation. And I really wanted to mention this because people think it's only for writers but it's for readers too and anybody who disagrees with what people like Mums for Liberty are doing are absolutely free to join their local pen group, whether that be Pen America, English Pen, or indeed Pen International. There's a pen in 
just about every country of the world uh, as a reader just to support this freedom of speech. And, and, and taking us back to that, I mean, you made, while we were listening to that, you made the very good point that people who say that they're advocating for freedom are, in fact, doing exactly the opposite. I mean, not I, pen. <laughs> no, where, when I was listening to the so-called Mums for Liberty, they seem to be wanting to s- stop people uh, having the liberty to read the things they want, which seemed, uh, if I'm feeling generous, because it's a Saturday morning, uh, rather uh, a contradiction in terms. There were other words we might have used off air, but uh, for, uh, for now, I'll just say it's a rather contradiction. Say so you want you're a mum advocating for liberty, but that includes restricting things. I mean. Look, I've written a book, I'm a reader, avid reader, I get to have the pleasure of reviewing books professionally. The idea of anything that suppresses access to books, um, I mean, you saw me shaking my head as we were listening to that, it deeply, deeply horrifies me. And I kind of think there's this rather horrible notion that like, you know, literature and books in general are sort of some middle class concern and like... The idea of stopping kids of any background reading books in school, which is obviously often the first place people get access to books, is ju- just so abhorrent to me as we were listening to that. that yeah, it seemed, a, as I say, a contradiction in terms that you're calling yourselves for liberty but restricting mm. the mo- you know, things that your children can access in, in their school. You know, school libraries are really important spaces for people. Absolutely, absolutely. What do you think of the the ongoing story, and it continues to be reported, about Mm. books like, uh, uh, books by people such as Roald Dahl and Mm. we're talking about... Roald Dahl was the one I was thinking of as we were listening to that, actually. Uh, So so the story is that people want these books rewritten because they are now deemed to be politically incorrect, and as as indeed they are in in lots of instances, uh, lots of things are said in, in his books and in many, many other books that are just not acceptable to say nowadays. My view is is that that we need to contextualise this. We need to keep the original there. We need to learn from what we've done. If we sanitise everything, how will we know what's wrong? Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree entirely with that. I mean, talking of Roald Dahl, look, we know Roald Dahl himself was not a very nice person. We know he was essentially an anti-Semite. He was just a deeply unpleasant person, wasn't he? Uh, but his books were a huge part of my childhood as were millions of others. And when that story first emerged that the publisher was sort of rewriting, which is ultimately what it was, his work, I, I was really uncomfortable with it because I think your point is right that when uh, we... Like, the language in Royal Dahl's books now is not often not acceptable. There's horrible descriptions of people, of race, of all sorts of things that rightly we have got better at dealing with. But as you say, we, we should know what was in the past so we can deal with things better. And as a reference, and this, I can understand if you're a parent, maybe reading Roald Dahl to your child for the first time, it can be hard. You might have to navigate saying, look, we don't use words like this anymore. But again, that's better, I think, than, you know, a publisher unilaterally saying we can't do this. And of course, they did alter their view a bit, didn't they? Because they're going to keep both these rewritten ones and I think they're going to keep the originals as well and make sure they're marked and distinct so people know what they're reading, which I kind of think is not a bad compromise Mm. to have got to. Well, people should know what they're reading and that's very true but where does that leave us then with ghostwriters because uh-huh. there's been a, a big story this week and it's about Britney Spears she has a new yes. memoir out called The Woman in Me uh, and uh, but actually it's not about the woman in her it's about well what the ghostwriter sees as the woman in her it's, it's quite interesting and of course we had uh, Prince Harry with his his mm. his memoir his ghostwriter who didn't stay very ghost for very long <laughs> <laughs> which was interesting yeah. I mean what's your take on ghostwriters um 
look, I understand if you're a celebrity and it's not your first job to be a writer, but you want to present a good book. There's nothing working with someone whose profession that is. The ghostwriter couldn't sing and perform like Britney Spears could. And so, you know, that's fair enough, really. Um, I do think it's interesting when the kind of ghostwriters come out the closet a bit, as they did with the Prince Harry one. Um, so, yeah, I, it does make sense with celebrities, doesn't it, that you're going to have people who are not writers by trade are going to work with someone that is. But it brings us back to, to the whole fake news thing. So, for instance, I'm not going to name him, but there is a, a children's writer who's also a big television celebrity. Sure. Uh, and he has is, is cranking out books. They, they go straight to number one. He doesn't write them. Shouldn't we be... I'm no, hang on, I'm just trying to... I'm scrolling on a piece of paper who I think you're talking about. <laughs> um, uh, so... I think that is slightly different to a celebrity with a ghostwriter. When someone is claiming to be a writer, that makes me a little bit more uncomfortable. Yeah. And look, there's, there's obviously a bit of a grey area in this because people, writers, work with editors who might change things in their books and improve them. Obviously, my original transcript for my book was perfection and I didn't need any editing, but <laughs> other people I've heard do. Yeah. Um, so there is that, which is obviously... I don't really consider that... A, you know, that's a problem. Often editors are wonderful and improve people's work, but there is a different thing when it's only one person's name on it and someone else has contributed. As I say, I, I'm slightly... I'm not really offended about it when it's a celebrity whose, you know, main career is not writing... I, I do think you have a point when it's someone who is sort of saying, I am a writer. Mm. I think that is a slightly different thing. Yeah. So, listen, I this leads me to a point where I can do some relentless self-promotion. Please. <laughs> so the Royal Society of Literature is a society that was founded in 1820 by King George IV. It was to reward literary merit and excite literary talent. So exactly what we're not talking about here. That's not where ghostwriters come in, I think. It's also a charity that represents the voice of literature in the UK. It's got about 600 fellows elected from amongst the best writers in any genre currently at work. Uh, there are also honorary fellows who are chosen from those who've made a significant contribution to the advancement of literature. And as of this week, I'm one of them. I'm wow. so thrilled. This but is I, fantastic. Well, it is. But can I just tell you right. what a fraud I feel? Because no, basically... we have to get over this imposter syndrome. <laughs> You've earned it. No, but I still think of myself as the, 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 the girl who was forging my mum's signature so I could go into the adult section of the Harare City oh. Library. So... <laughs> So shaking Bernardine Everest's I mean, hand listen. and accepting an honour does feel a bit of a stretch. And here's the thing. I got to sign with George Eliot's pen. You could choose. There were lots of pens, including Dickens and oh. Arnold Wesker and also the Andrea Levy um, and um, T.S. Eliot. Um, and I chose George Eliot um, but it was really hard to write with. It was, a, you know, one of those... I'd have been scared about ink. dropping it or something. Well, and I got ink all over my sure. fingers. And you, did you do the King Charles... Oh. Get me a new pen. <laughs> it was really hard to write with it, though. And, and everybody kind of said that. So they take pictures of you as you're writing sure. it. And I'm just scowling at the camera because I can't get the bloody pen And so to did work. you sign with your signature? Were you still forging your mother's? <laughs> I have a sort of in-between signature right. that I do for public signings. So I don't want to sign how I sign sure. my bank stuff when I'm doing it for the public. So it's, it's always a, a, a little bit different. Um, now, of course, one lot of people who know how to sign because they have spent their entire adult lives signing autographs, signing pictures, signing body parts uh, and they're once again in the news because they're about to do it all again is the Spice Girls. I'm so excited about this. 
when I came in this morning, I, I insisted. I'm not a you know particularly demanding guest, I'd like to think, but I did insist that we talk about the Spice Girls, because so, I'm sort of 35, nearly 36. And for me, you know, obviously I was prime time when they appeared. I was so excited about this because they're coming back. Um, I was trying to think, I'm sure the last time all five of them were together performing must have been the London Olympics, which is obviously 11 years ago. Gosh, is it that long ago? It was 2012. Let's not think Boy, about it too much. It feels like the other day. Um, so, so Victoria Beckham has agreed to reunite with the other four. I think she was the last holdout. So they're sort of coming back, teaming up back together, and I'm very excited. That's excellent. I mean, it it is, as you say, for a certain generation of us, it's, it was, you know, it was so important. It, it, you know, it's <laughs> iconic, girl power, all of that. And look, we can, I can probably accept now, as I've advanced in years, it's not the greatest music of all time, but there was something so of the moment about it. And so, you know, seeing these five women together and, you know, at least two of them are quite talented. I'll leave you to get switched. <laughs> and so this idea that they were sort of reuniting, it's like my sort of early teen, uh, you know, years coming back together. And it's, yeah, it's rather and exciting. And will you go and see them? Well, I actually discussed this. I was speaking to my dad and he said, I'm not taking you again. <laughs> that was his, you know, obviously when we were little, it had to be parental supervision. But um, I, it might be quite a laugh to go with a bunch of... I imagine it will be all sort of my age women going as opposed to like children or people that were you know that kind of thing so I, I'm sure it'll be a bit of a sort of early 30s mid 30s reunion and will you all regress do you think oh I hope so <laughs> uh, we saw some of that didn't we with like what was it take that and all those kind of things when those bands came back together yeah. I think there was absolute carnage when they were all together so I'm sure a Spice Girls reunion will be somewhat similar but it's, oh, it's very exciting Charlotte Henry enjoy the concert that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Christy O'Grady, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Oh, Charlotte, there was one thing I forgot to ask you. <laughs> Yo, tell me what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really wanna zig a zig. Ah. If you want my future, forget my past.